In today's podcast, we explore background knowledge, experiences, and misconceptions surrounding psychodynamic therapy and discuss how we define evidence for it with our guest, Dr. Jonathan Chedler. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is an episode from the Psychotherapy Podcast team. I'm Mark Ruffalo, Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Psychotherapy Report. I'm also Instructor of Psychiatry at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine and Adjunct Instructor of Psychiatry at the Tufts University School of Medicine. And I am Geneva Valeska, a graduate with a degree in neuroscience and cognitive science and a podcast coordinator at the Carlat Report. Before we begin, we have some exciting news to share with you. You can now earn CME credit by listening to this episode and all future episodes on this channel. To access the CME post-test for this episode and upcoming episodes, please follow the podcast CME subscription link provided in the show notes. Without further ado, let's introduce our guest. I'm honored today to have with us on the Carlat Psychotherapy Report, uh, Dr. Jonathan Shedler, the esteemed psychodynamic psychologist, uh, clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, co-author of the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, co-creator of the Shedler-Weston Assessment Procedure for Personality Diagnosis and Clinical Case Formulation, and perhaps the most influential figure in the world of psychoanalysis today. I have said previously that Dr. Shedler is the person most responsible for saving psychoanalysis as a clinical discipline, and I don't believe that's going too far. Uh, his 2010 paper, The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy in the American Psychologist, firmly established psychodynamic psychotherapy as an evidence-based treatment, and it now stands as one of the most cited scientific papers in recent memory. I followed Dr. Shedler's work now for a few years. We're both on uh, the Twitter platform together. I guess we're uh, now calling that X. Long admired his work and outspokenness in defense of psychoanalytic and psychodynamic therapies. He advocates for the use of plain language in describing psychoanalytic concepts, which I think is especially important for trainees and younger therapists in the field, in, in a field that historically has been plagued by jargon, uh, which I think for some can be a real barrier to learning and practicing psychoanalysis and, and psychoanalytic therapies. Welcome, Dr. Shedler. Thank you. So, you know, as the inaugural editor-in-chief of the Carlisle Psychotherapy Report, I wanted to kick us off with a discussion about psychodynamic theory and therapy, which, as you know, has long been disparaged in academic psychology, in the media, and elsewhere. And I can think of no better person to have with us to discuss these topics than you, Dr. Shedler. I hope I live up to the introduction. <laughs> I, I'm uh, I'm sure you will. So I'm just going to jump into some questions for you. I'm, I've you know I've got some questions here as a guide, but I'd rather just have a you know a back and forth a dialogue. So my first question is, you know, for our audience, is psychodynamic psychotherapy an evidence based treatment? Well, I think that's a really good question, and I think anybody who tries to answer that question without clarifying what they mean by the term evidence-based is a fool. I mean, there's no point debating, is this evidence-based or not evidence-based, if we don't know what the word means. And, and this, is, this is the first thing we need to get on the table, because the word as it's used in the scientific literature, the psychotherapy research literature, does not mean what people think it means. It's a kind of a sleight of hand, and it's become a, a marketing buzzword, and it is absolutely not a scientific word. It does not have a scientific meaning. Let me say what I believe most people think the term means, and let me say what it actually de facto means. So when people, you know, you know lay people, people who are not in the profession, hear the word evidence-based, what they think it means is that there's scientific evidence showing that this treatment is likely to help them, right? That the treatment works and, and you know, works as in people who get the treatment get well, or at least get meaningfully better. And, you know, if, if not, you know, everyone who gets the treatment <laughs> gets well, at, at least, you know, a substantial, a meaningful number of people who get the treatment will get well. So when we trot these words out in public, 
and and you know people use the term evidence based as as PR. They say it, and people think, oh, scientific research proves that this treatment is very likely to help me. It does not mean that. What's happened de facto is that the term evidence-based, evidence-based therapy, has become a code word to refer to a very specific type of treatment for which there is no evidence of being any better than any other legitimate bona fide form of psychotherapy. So, you know, it, it's promoting a particular agenda and ideology. So what, what is it, you know, what is it really? When the term evidence-based, first of all, the, the term evidence-based de facto almost always means very brief, a very brief form of CBT that's conducted by following, literally conducted by following an instruction manual. We could call it instruction manual therapy. So typically the treatments are eight to 12 sessions, maybe 16 sessions at the, you know, at the extreme. They're standardized treatments that are guided by an instruction manual determined by a diagnosis, not based on what's important and relevant that emerges in the work for a specific person, right? They're very short. So when we say evidence-based, none of these, these are all assumptions that researchers have brought in before they ever collected any data at all. I'm assuming that therapy should be conducted in a standardized way following an instruction manual. I'm assuming that eight sessions or 12 sessions of treatment is adequate. I'm assuming that classifying people according to a DSM diagnosis captures what's psychologically important that should be the focus of therapy with this particular patient. None of these are scientific findings. These are assumptions. Now, the term, if, if I have my history correct, I, I think the term evidence-based, as it was originally used, was, was in medicine. Evidence-based. Of course. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this was a concept that was... Uh, very intricately tied to managed care. I don't know if it was tied to, I I think it eventually got to be tied to managed care. It it actually has, I think, I I feel more more charitable about its origin. My my understanding of the term, it it did arise from medicine. It became popular in the 1990s. And my understanding of the term was that it really, you know, medicine was a very kind of tradition-bound authoritarian kind of discipline you know you 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 did things a certain way because that's how they were done that's the way it's the way our teachers do it that's the way it's done and the pillars of evidence-based medicine were you know we should do things a certain way because that's the way we've always done them is really not a very good reason for you know choosing a course of treatment yeah and evidence-based medicine said really medical decisions should be based on three things they should reflect the expertise and judgment of the physician or the clinician. They should reflect the needs and you know, preferences and wishes of the patient. And they should reflect the best available scientific evidence, research evidence, where relevant evidence is available. So I understood it to be a call for critical thinking right, about what we do. The, the problem is when that word, People in psychology, very in psychotherapy world, very quickly discovered that that word has certain PR benefits. They adopted the word very quickly, and I would argue that they actually corrupted every single one of those, those pillars of, of what it means. Now we here's where we make the connection to what I was just talking about. It became a code word to promote a particular ideology and agenda about how psychotherapy should be done. Clinicians are not supposed to use their expertise and skill, which is a fundamental pillar of evidence-based medicine. They're supposed to follow a manual created by somebody else, by academic researchers, generally somebody else who's never seen a patient in their lives. You know, secondly, patients' values, preferences, desires don't matter. We don't start by saying to the patient, um, you know, what's your idea of how psychotherapy could help? What are you looking for here? We tell the patient. This is the gold standard. This is the treatment for you. 
We yeah. don't give them information about the range of kinds of treatments that are actually available to them. We, we basically, you know, collapse any space for them to make an informed decision. And then with respect to scientific evidence, only evidence, <laughs> only the evidence that supports this agenda and this ideology counts. So actually, we, we, we kind of make mincemeat of real yeah. science and, and real evidence. I'm going to get to that in a, in a second. So we've taken this term that comes from medicine and has a certain cachet, you know, marketing cachet, and, you know, and we've applied it to something in a very distorted way, in a way that does violence to the, the principles and the spirit of the concept. I tell this story when I speak sometimes, you know, I, I learned that the word was complete bunk, that it was just a, a, an advertising catchphrase when um, I'm, a, I'm a skier. I have a, you probably don't know this about me, but I have a whole second life as a professional ski instructor. And I love going into ski shops and looking at tech and the newest skis. And, you know, and I went into a, a number of years ago, I went into a ski shop and they had a big banner on the wall <laughs> and it's an evidence-based apparel. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Well, you know, well, I know damn well that you know the uh, apparel manufacturer your company wasn't out there doing randomized control trials, you know, comparing their 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 apparel to some you know control group of other yeah. apparel. It it became an advertising phrase. Here here's the issue. Let's accept all of the premises and all of the assumptions that, in fact, I believe are are most. Most of them are flat out false. I don't believe, I don't believe eight or twelve sessions of therapy is enough treatment for most people most of the time. There are always exceptions, but we have data. We know we have parameters for how long it takes for people to benefit from therapy, and it's not eight or twelve sessions, right? So I think the assumption is yeah. false. But let's accept that. Let's accept the assumption that therapy should be agenda-driven and scripted according to an instruction manual, not something that you know, emerges and evolves in a more organic way between a specific individual you know, patient and a, and a specific clinician. Let's accept that premise. Let's even accept the premise that the outcome of therapy is reducible to nothing but your score on, say, a depression scale. Nothing else in your life matters, only your score on the scale. That, that is the entirety of all we care about for outcome. Those are the assumptions that, yes. that the researchers bring in. I believe all of them are false, but let's accept them. If we accept all of their premises, and we say, does evidence-based therapy mean that most people who get the treatment get well, or at least get meaningfully better. And the evidence, the data, the science that you know the people promoting these treatments you know keep yes. pounding, is crystal clear. Most people who get these treatments do not get well, do not stay well, do not get meaningful, lasting benefits from the treatments. The data show that the treatments fail, the overwhelming majority of people who get them, let me put specific numbers to it. The most researched condition of all, more studies, hundreds of studies of psychotherapy, outcomes of, of, of treatments for depression. Yes. Seven out of 10 people who complete these so-called evidence-based treatments do not improve or relapse very quickly. That is the scientific finding. It is possibly the most replicated finding in the entire field of psychology. Yes. We can say with absolute certainty, yes. most people, most of the time who get these treatments will not get well and stay well. That's the fact. Can you tell us which therapy specifically to which you're referring? I thought I said that. Evidence-based therapy, there's some exceptions. I'm, I'm being a, a little bit glib, but not, not that glib. It's almost always a code word for brief, yes. manualized CBT. So the CBT proponents that include stakeholders with very questionable agenda, like health insurance companies, which yes. are primarily in the business of, you know, of, of making profit by restricting and rationing care. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you, you see, you know, the term gold standard used all the time by CBT researchers and practitioners. And I'm sure you saw, you know, about a month ago or a couple of months ago, some prominent CBT people coming I out and, and saying, in essence, you know, 
Well, gold standard doesn't mean it's better than anything else. The the hypocrisy in this is that the people who are using the term are the people who who beat the drum for science loudest and yeah. endlessly. And and your bullshit detector should go off when you hear the word. Gold standard is not a scientific term. It doesn't have any scientific <laughs> meaning. It's a marketing term. And then, you know, if you're thinking about the same interaction that I am that happened on Twitter, right? It was yes. with a researcher I actually respect. I think he's an honest researcher. Yes. When yes. you pinned him down on what do you really mean by gold standard? Oh, well, I didn't mean it was shown to be better than any just, other kind of treatment. Well, what the data. hell are you talking about then? If that's <laughs> not what it means, you know damn well that when yeah. you use that term, that's what people hear. You know that people understand the word to mean something other than what you mean. Yeah. You don't clarify that unless you're pinned to the wall, you know, by somebody, yeah. you know, pressing you for the details. And then you come out and say, oh, I, I didn't mean it was better than any other bona fide treatment. I meant it differently. Yes. Well, what the hell is that about? Yeah. Well, we, we could spend all day talking about evidence-based therapy and the problems with the language and, and, and the like. Let me put one yeah. other number out there. So yeah. seven out of 10 people, that's a generous estimate, by the way, who get so-called evidence-based treatments for depression, which is to say brief manualized CBT, do not improve at all or relapse quickly. We could look at that for research on PTSD. As best we can tell, two out of three people, two-thirds of the people who get so-called evidence-based right, brief CBT for PTSD still have PTSD when they finish the treatment, right? And the researchers point, I am getting these numbers from the same studies that the people promoting this point to, to say that it works. What they mean when they say that it works is, you know, a study exists. Somebody has done a study. We compared it to a control group that either gets no treatment at all or no treatment that's actually intended to help the problem. And they point to the study and say, well, you know, it's scientifically proven because look, there's a study and it's like they could care less about what their own study shows. Like if you're going to say we believe in science, then put your skin in the game. Say, yeah. Well, what does that scientific study show you? It shows that most people who get the treatment don't get well. Fact, scientific fact. So there's yeah. kind of a sleight of hand that goes on here. Indeed, indeed. And, and we see it all the time. I want to ask you, you know, about the current climate in psychotherapy in terms of training. And I, I would just like to sort of get your thoughts on the current state of psychotherapy training in the United States. My impression is that there have been many changes in the training of therapists over over the years. And I think Kernberg has gone on record in, in saying that psychotherapy training in the United States has gone down the drain. We come from different backgrounds. I'm a clinical social worker. You were trained in clinical psychology. We both teach psychiatry residents, and, and we know a little bit about the state of training. But I just sort of want to get a sense from you. You know, what do you think of how therapists are trained in this country and what they're taught in, in graduate school and, and, and coming out into the world practicing psychotherapy today? I think we're turning out vast numbers of therapists who are not prepared to do the work. I listened to a podcast recently. I, I had not been aware of his work previously, but I was very impressed. Lou, Lou Cozzolino, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And, you know, he said, therapists come out and it's like, you know, <laughs> they, they come out, they, they go into practice somewhere, they're you know thrown into the deep end and they don't know how to swim. And then they end up grabbing for whatever seeming life you know, life preserver, you know, is the closest reach, you know, some workbook, some worksheet to give their patients. You yeah. Know, the last weekend seminar they did, you know, you know, cure all for everyone. And they start applying that, that to everyone. I think it's simply a fact that we have a lot of people who are being trained to be therapists who really aren't adequately prepared. Exactly my experience. You know, I, I trained at a pretty good MSW program, highly ranked and, uh, and, and graduated, uh, got a job at the University Psychiatric Hospital and began seeing psychotherapy patients and felt very unprepared uh, the first uh, few months uh, on the job. And my gut reaction was, uh, I need to go out and buy a manual to tell me what I ought to say to the people <laughs> sitting in front of me. And I uh, was very fortunate to have a psychiatrist who was sort of a mentor uh, that I worked with and 
he was uh, from Europe and he was psychoanalytically minded and he uh, encouraged me to to dive into the psychoanalytic literature and sort of the rest is history. But I imagine that there are a lot of young therapists like myself back then who who probably would have gone out and, and purchased a manual. Yeah, that's exactly what a lot of people end up doing or they sign up for, you know, some online workshop where they attend yeah. a weekend workshop. And I think the person who likened it to a drowning person, you know, grabbing for a life preserver, you know, captured something important. And I've been teaching and supervising for many years, psychologists, psychiatrists, both, and other kinds of mental health professionals. I've seen the field change a lot. And, you know, I see people coming out of programs, people getting licensed, who, from my vantage point, are, are really missing the basics. Now, among those people, you know, who, who come out not adequately prepared, we could say there's two kinds of people. There are those like you who say, I need to learn more. I need to study more. I'm a beginner. And go out and seek mentors, supervisors, you know, consultants, further study, reading, personal psychotherapy, et cetera, you know, and, and begin to develop themselves professionally as a therapist. But there's a large group that, you know, now needs to circle the wagons, you know, they're experts now, and they'll do anything they can to, to like defend, you know, it, it's just a foregone conclusion. You know, I'm, I'm an expert. So we could say it's a kind of a, to use a little bit of psychoanalytic language, a, a, a kind of a false self, a false self of, of, of grandiosity and mm. competence, you know, masking a deficit. A lot of them are on social media, <laughs> presenting themselves as experts on mental health topics, right? They, they, they circle the wagons and, you know, it's bad enough that they've come out, you know, really missing fundamentals of what this work is about. But, you know, at that point, they become ineducable because they're too, you know, defended to say, mm. you know, I, I, I need more than I have. And they tend to be louder and more prominent in yes. public forums. And they are the ones who are, to a frightening extent, shaping public perceptions of what psychotherapy is. I think that last point is, is really important. If you had to name one concept in psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory that you believe is essential for all practicing therapists to, to know and to understand, regardless of theoretical orientation, because a lot of our listeners come from varied schools of psychotherapy, what would you say it is? How about I describe it first and I use the word later? Because what I've learned from teaching and supervising is if you use the psychoanalytic word first, people shut off. <laughs> they don't hear it. Yes. If you describe it in experience near language and in plain English, most, actually, I've almost never encountered anyone who, who objected. Most people recognize it and say, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, of course. So we've, I mean, we've kind of got in the psychoanalytic or psychodynamic world, we we, we kind of have a, a terminology and an, and an image problem. I'd say the most important concept is, by virtue of being human, we all acquire certain kinds of relationship patterns, ways of relating to ourselves and to other people, and they're really forged in the context of our of our earliest relationships, of our formative relationships. It's not pathology. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not a diagnosis. It's just how we humans are constructed. We internalize, we internalize certain patterns or templates for relationships. We view other people and other relationships through those lenses right, of our earliest formative relationships. And as a result, for better or worse, we tend to repeat certain kinds of relationship patterns throughout our lives. If those patterns allow for fulfillment, connection, intimacy, engagement in the world, joy, then all is well. If those patterns cause pain, suffering, limitation, become self-defeating, all is not well. That's when people come to psychotherapy. So here's the important idea. Starting from the recognition that we repeat and live out our 
central relationship patterns in our relationships with other people, we come into psychotherapy, and psychotherapy is also a relationship. And we bring our patterns and our lenses into the psychotherapy relationship. And in one way or another, we proceed to recreate those patterns in the therapy relationship. And that's what we want to happen in psychotherapy. And if we do therapy, if we do it well, if we arrange things properly, we arrange the therapy in such a way that those patterns stand out in high relief in the therapy relationship, where it becomes possible to recognize them, understand them, discuss them, and hopefully rework them. So that the goal of the work is that the person can gain some freedom from having to spend their lives repeating the same painful and self-defeating patterns. The goal of the work is expanded freedom to be able to live our lives more fully and freely. To paraphrase what a colleague of, of mine says, we count on the patient to fuck up the therapy relationship in the same way that they fuck up their other relationships. <laughs> and we want them to do that yeah. because that's what makes it possible to understand what's going right and what's going wrong and hopefully help the person to rework that. That's what we mean when we say transference. Transference and countertransference are the concepts. The person brings their lenses and their patterns into the treatment they, they view the therapist through those lenses. That's the transference. We, as therapists, you know, enter into the gravitational pull of those patterns, and we find ourselves in various ways reenacting and reliving those patterns with the person. That's the countertransference. And the work of the therapy is, can we treat that as information, and can we use that information constructively to help the person to know themselves more fully and create the option to be able to do things differently. Beautifully said. Beautiful description of the concept of transference. You said something in there that I think is really important, and this is probably one point upon which we most agree. And you said that the therapist has to set up an arrangement within which this phenomenon can develop and the work can take place. And we're talking here, of course, about the frame. And you talk about the frame often on social media. I reference the frame. And of course, uh, there are many people who take issue with this concept, this notion that there's something important about the frame of psychotherapy. But I just want to get a sense from you. Why is this so important? Because uh, why this do you, is why a do relationship we... that's fraught. We have two human beings who bring their own relational patterns, their own needs, their own desires, their own, you know, <laughs> their own self-defeating and self-limiting patterns into a relationship that becomes a right, if it's a meaningful therapy and it's ongoing over time, it becomes an emotionally intense relationship. And we have two human beings in there. And it's a setup for catastrophe. It's like, I'm going to use Glenn Gabbard's metaphor, you know. It's like driving a you know overpowered sports car on a windy mountainous road at high speed, <laughs> you know, and there's a cliff on one side, you know, plunging into the abyss, and you damn well better have some guardrails so that you can do this work in a way that's safe and constructive for yes. both people. And the frame we can think of the frame as the guardrails that make it possible to do this very difficult, very intense, very fraught work in a way that's safe and in a way, ultimately, that can be helpful for the patient, right? That's one function of the frame. But the other frame, you can think of it more like, like you know, a frame around a painting or a picture. You know, it, it delineates, separates, you know, what's inside the frame, the, you know, the picture from, from everything around it, right? The purpose of the frame is to create the conditions where we can see the patterns that the person is bringing in in, in high relief. You know, we want to stack the deck right, in favor of understanding and insight and awareness. Right? The work is hard enough to do anyway. The last thing we need to do is you know, muck it up with so many different things going on, so many variables in the mix that we can never see clearly 
what, is, what are the patterns the patient is bringing that are the source of their difficulties that we could work on in therapy? So you know, what we try to do is create a structure where the patient's difficulties, you know, number one, where they can play out in ways that we can see and understand them, but number two, in ways that we have a, a realistic chance of being able to work with them in a way that can bring about psychological change. You know, I, I feel like we're, we're you know, just skipping over the surface of, of, a, of a very, very deep concept. And, you know, what, what I've observed, people who are dismissive or disparaging about the frame don't actually understand the principles involved in meaningful, insight-oriented therapy. That is to say, therapy that's aimed at deeper self-understanding, self-knowledge, you know, psychological freedom, becoming more whole, we ask a lot of the patient. What we ask them to do is we say, in effect, anything at all that you think, feel, experience, remember, you know, notice here, a memory, a mental image, a physical sensation, a thought, a feeling, anything is grist for the mill. We're going to bring it up. If you think it, feel it, notice it, say it. We want to create a space where the person can talk openly and freely about, you know, their most private, intimate experience in a way they've never, ever been able to do in their life before. We want to create the conditions where it becomes possible for the person to, you know, unmask themselves, to get below the, you know, the surface levels of experience and, and know themselves more deeply. And, and that's only possible with the establishment and the maintenance of a therapeutic frame. The yes. paradox is, you know, the, the more trustworthy and reliable and clear the boundaries of that relationship, of that space, the clearer and sturdier the boundaries are, the more freedom there is within those boundaries to allow these things, you know, these, yes. these aspects of experience to arise, you know, to put words to them in ways that you, you can't do elsewhere. So, you know, what does that mean? Just to, just to give a, you know, crude, you know, kind of basic example, two people are sitting in the room week after week over, you know, often extended periods of time, very powerful feelings are going to arise in, in both people. And you can, if you're the, the patient or the client, the conditions necessary for you to allow yourself, you know, to, to, to delve into thoughts, fantasies, say about wanting to kiss your therapist, wanting to punch your therapist. Right? Yeah. The conditions necessary for that is that you need to be pretty damn certain there aren't going to be actual punches or actual kisses, you know, that what takes place in the realm of thoughts and feelings and fantasies is going to stay in the realm of thoughts, yes. feelings, and fantasies. So the paradox is the boundaries of the frame, the, the, the certainty that we are not going to act on our fantasies is what makes it safe for those fantasies to emerge, right? So again, I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating, right? The more secure the frame, the more secure the boundaries of the frame, the more freedom there is within those boundaries to you know really fully know ourselves. You know, what's another example? How safe is it to really go into my, you know, fear of abandonment and rejection? Can I show the therapist those sides of me that are really off-putting? I have a patient recently said you know, she's been showing me and showing other people the candy-coated version of her. And I said, yeah, I'd like to make the acquaintance of the other versions of you. How do we show, you know, our, 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 the, the most, you know, what we think of? The therapist doesn't typically think this, but the, the patient does. You know, the ugliest parts of ourselves, the most shameful parts of ourselves, the most hateful parts of ourselves. What is it that makes it safe for us to reveal that? What is it that makes itself to delve into our our feelings, our expectations, our fantasies of being, we're going to be abandoned. We're going to be rejected. If we go into this, we're going to drive the therapist away. Right? Well, you need to be pretty damn certain that yes. no matter what you say in the session, 
you can count on the therapist to be there next time in the next session at the appointed time and place. And if you don't have the security of believing that that happens and you don't know when your next session is going to be, it's really not safe to go into that. So that implies certain things. It means, you know, and there's always, I mean, all of this is done flexibly. There's always variations. You know, a frame is not a rigid set of rules. It's it's a set of guidelines. But But what it means in practice is, you don't schedule appointments on the fly. Oh, well, we'll meet and see about when next time. The patient has a standing appointment. You know, yes. They know and they can count on this is their time. I think what you're getting at is something so important. And I think it's often misunderstood is that the frame allows the treatment to occur. It allows the contents of the, of the psychotherapy to play out. But the frame in and of itself is a fundamental therapeutic intervention. Because a lot of people who come into therapy have never in their lives experienced a relationship with somebody, you know, who is dependable, reliable, trustworthy, who means what they say, who says what they mean, right? Right? You can count on this person that, you know, you can count on this person to be trustworthy, reliable, and available, not 24-7, but available within the parameters that the both of you agree to up front. The frame creates the safety for Correct. both people to fully engage in the work. And the therapists who are you know, dismissive of the frame right, really don't understand the fundamental principle of what do you need to do to create an environment where it becomes safe for both people to engage in that way. It reminds me of a beautiful quote from the late uh, Bill Meyer. I'm not sure if you knew Bill psychoanalytic social worker, but he said, he wrote in a paper, the ideal treatment for the person who has been failed by human relationships is an enduring human relationship that does not fail. I think it's so simple, but so beautiful. And I think it captures the essence of this idea, safety, trust, security within the treatment relationship. There's no such thing as a perfect therapy and there's no such thing as a perfect therapist. But, you know, what we're striving for is we would like the patient to have the experience. I can say, feel, experience, express anything. Mm-hmm. And it will be met with, you know, sincere curiosity and a sincere desire to understand my experience. Yes. And that it can be talked about. The therapist is not going to do something differently. He's not going to do something in my, you know, that, that impacts my life. Yes. Because of what I, you know, express in the therapy relationship. Yes. And that means, you know, pragmatically, we really need a a kind of a firewall between the therapy space and all of the rest of life where we can say to the patient, you know, sincerely and mean it, you know, you can say anything in here, what you say here, you know, fantasies are free, what you say here is not going to adversely affect some other area of your life. You know, we have to be, you know, you have to be careful, you have to be wary, like all of us have to be all the time in every other area of our life. You have to be wary about what are the consequences of this. Sure. You know, the consequences sure. are whatever you say, hopefully the therapist meets with curiosity and acceptance, and they're there the next time, just like they said. Right. To summarize, I, I think the frame can be conceptualized as the therapist keeping his or her promises. What the therapist promises to do, they do what the therapist promises not to do. And the therapist keeps their word and they mean yes. what they say. And and part of that is, well, you know, even, even something as simple as, you know, it seems so trivial, starting and ending the session on time. Why is that important? It sounds so damn rigid, unless, unless you really understand the principles of, of, of what's going yeah. on. You know, one of the things that makes it safer to go into the, you know, delve into the most painful, darkest corners of our experience, you know, is we're not going to get lost there and stay there indefinitely. You know, it's safe to do that because it has a beginning and an end, you know, yes. and we can count on that. And the therapist thinks they're doing the patient a you know great favor. Well, the patient is in the middle of something really, you know, painful and dark. We give them more time. In the immediate short run, right in the moment, that might be a kind thing to do. Bigger picture, right? Uh, (laughs) Longer term. You know what we're saying is, 
actually, we know, you know, when I say this, what we're doing together, this experience that we're going to share together, you know, this has a beginning and an end. We both know in advance what it is. You can count on it reliably. Uh, yeah, well, maybe I meant that. Maybe I didn't. Yes, exactly. Maybe we'll just change the rules on the fly based on how we feel in the moment. Does that mean a therapist should never, ever extend a session no matter what? No, of course not. We're human beings. We respond flexibly. Hopefully, we respond to the patient compassionately. There is a time and a place to bend and stretch the frame. The issue is it's not a set of rigid rules to follow. It's an understanding of the principles involved of what is it, what are the conditions necessary to really do this kind of very, very deep kind of work. Yes, beautifully said. You know, really the only point of contention I think that we've ever had, at least in my memory, is your claim that psychiatric diagnoses are labels for symptoms and don't point to cause. And while I certainly agree with this notion when it comes to talking about something like generalized anxiety disorder, which has very poor validity uh, as a diagnostic construct, I don't believe it holds true for something like schizophrenia. You know, you're, you're talking about edge cases. You know, there was a time in psychiatry when I don't know. I mean, you know, the history of psychiatry is replete with instances of things that were considered psychiatric disorders until the medical cause was found. Right. And, and, (laughs) and then all of a sudden they become the domain of another medical specialty that treats the biological underpinnings of of it. You know, they become neurological conditions or, I mean, there was once a time when we thought that ulcers were psychological conditions that psychiatrists should treat with psychotherapy you know well it turns out that (laughs) turns out a lot of ulcers are actually (laughs) right they're bacterial and they can be treated by antibiotics well guess what psychiatrists don't treat ulcers anymore yeah so there's all these edge cases in in, i just want to share a little historical tidbit in the 1950s there was a paper published on the psychodynamics of, of male pattern baldness. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, the kicker here is that both psychiatrists went on to lose their hair as they, <laughs> as they aged, you know. So, so of course, there's, there's all these cases. But you would see that in maybe what we call severe mental disorders, we can say quite accurately that when we're talking, say, about bipolar illness, that a person's mood swings, we can say accurately they are caused by that person having something called bipolar disorder. You wouldn't disagree with that. They're caused by the person having something, you know, that hopefully will become increasingly understandable over time. You know, what we call it is sort of neither here nor there. What, what I would say is for most of the things that bring people to psychotherapy specifically, I mean, most people come to I mean, people come for a wide range of things, but it, you know, usually at the center of them, you know, is is anxiety or depression or you know, or some mix of that. We can consider anxiety and depression the the, the psychic equivalents of fever. And you know, depression isn't caused by depression. Depression is caused by something, right? And and that's what we're in the business of doing is as, as yep. a psychotherapist. What is it that's giving rise to this specific person's depression? Right. So we cannot move from the diagnostic descriptor depression to a treatment plan because the diagnostic descriptor is about as useful as saying, well, this person has fever. It's like, okay, if they have fever, I know, you know, I'm going to bring the fever down, you know, aspirin and whatever it takes to deal with the, you know, immediate acute symptoms. But, you know, there's no physician in the world who thinks their job is done then, right? Their job is, well, what, you know, is this something minor in passing? And, you know, have a fever from a common cold, you know, or it could be Ebola or, you know, or leukemia. And and what's happening in the mental health professions and, you know, and and in psychiatry is people are being trained to think that the diagnostic categories, you know, and the, the labels are the cause of the phenomenon. So in that respect, it's not that using diagnostic terminology is good or bad. It's how we use it. If we understand that this is a nomenclature for you know shared professional communication. So if I say to you, this person has you know, major depressive disorder, you know what that means. You have a very clear idea of it. We don't know how to treat it. We don't know what it's causing, but at least you know 
we know the cluster of symptoms that the person yeah. is suffering from. Right. So it provides a nomenclature for, you know, for professional communication. But then it's very common in the field to start pretending that it's something more than that nomenclature. Yeah. And and, yeah. and then it becomes very anti-psychological. Yes, and indeed. Thanks for clarifying there. I think that we're probably more on the same page than we Yeah, well, I think you would agree. But, you know, meaningful psychotherapy is driven by a case formulation, which is a psychological understanding. What is this going on psychologically that is, you know, creating and perpetuating this, this person's problems? Right? Yes. You know, right? a case formulation is, is our, you know, our best our best draft, you know, draft 1.0, draft 2.0, because it changes as we learn more, you know, but it's our best working draft of what is our understanding of what we're trying to do in, in psychotherapy with this particular person at this particular juncture, right? That's what's at the heart of good psychotherapy, not a DSM diagnostic code. Yeah. Lastly, I, I want to jump to a question to conclude about your thoughts on the future of psychoanalysis and, and psychodynamic therapy. and. I've been teaching, you know, psychiatry residents for almost a decade, and I know you've been teaching residents and psychologists and, and the like yes. for a little longer than that. I have the sense that the pendulum seems to be swinging back toward a more psychodynamic-friendly approach or a biopsychosocial approach within psychiatry that that considers uh, these uh, psychological forces. And, and maybe that's because I teach mainly in a department shared by a, a psychoanalyst. Do you think that, uh, you know, in the next decade or couple of decades, we will see more or less psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy? I'm going to preface this by saying, I mean, my expertise is doing psychotherapy and doing psychological research. My expertise isn't crystal ball readings. So <laughs> I just want to make that clear up front. I really don't know. I think more thoughtful people in the field and, and people who are actually in the trenches doing the work, I think are understanding that some of the therapy modalities and the tools they've been given are really very limited. They're looking for something else and something more. I think they're looking for psychodynamic concepts, but they don't know that's what they're looking for. And, you know, we, we've like, we've, we've just, it's like we've poisoned the language and the vocabulary. So now when a lot of people hear the word psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, the first one, they don't know what it means. It's just a bunch of, you know, stereotypes and pejorative stereotypes and caricatures that, you know, they've sort of picked up from various teachers along the way. They have yeah. no idea what it refers to. And, you know, they, they kind of turn off. You know, so the, the question is the people who understand what we, we need to understand our patients more deeply. We need something else. You know, are they going to find their way to that? Or, you know, or have, have these waters been so poisoned that people can't recognize what it is that's of, of timeless value in them? And I don't know how that's going to play out. You know, I just, but coincidentally, I just recorded a podcast immediately before this one. The interviewer is a, a therapist, and we were talking about the concept of, of transference. And, and she said, you know, while her, throughout her training, she was taught, you know, transference, I'm sorry, counter-transference. Counter-transference is a bad thing. You know, it's an unwelcome intrusion in therapy. We should get rid of it. You know, you should try to, you know, we have to shut out <laughs> or overcome or transcend, yeah. you know, feelings that arise in, in the course of working with a particular people. And it's like, and we had a good discussion about it. It would literally be impossible to misunderstand the concept more seriously, <laughs> you know, right. it, it, it's like you—you you, you not only do you not know what it means, it's you know—it's the opposite, yes. Of, yes. It's the opposite of of, of the, you know, what we're trying to understand in this. And and then you know this happens online all the time. You know, a word like that will come up, you know, in a discussion on Twitter and Twitter therapy or therapy Twitter or therapy X. You know, <laughs> people will just pounce on the word. They don't have a goddamn clue what it means. They are absolutely ignorant about the concept and the tradition, right? And the data, evidence that gives rise to the term. They don't know what it means. Now, that's okay. And not everybody can know everything, right? The, yes. the, we, we misunderstand things, not everything. That's not the problem. The problem is that they are absolutely certain they know what it means. And then they want to start to have an argument 
based on their understanding or misunderstanding of a concept. They actually have no understanding of it. They want to have an argument with somebody who does understand it, and they're using the same word. I mean, they mean diametrically opposite things. And a conversation, a meaningful discussion is in fact impossible unless you can find some way to go back to the beginning and say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, what, what's that line in, in The Princess Bride, that, that word you're using? I'm not sure it means what you think it means. What do you mean by this word? Let's talk about what you mean so I understand. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about what, what I mean so that you understand. Because right now, I think the word is a barrier to understanding. And both of us are convinced we know what it means. And yet, we're, we're missing each other. Certainly in public discussion forums like social media, I haven't seen that there's a lot of space to have that kind of more thoughtful, nuanced discussion. Mostly it's people, you know, sort of beating the drum for their own point of view. In fact, you and I did the same. We didn't do the same thing. We could have done this. You you started, you know, you started this interview today by saying, is psychodynamic therapy evidence-based? You know, before I wanted to venture an answer, let's talk about what that term does and doesn't mean, because it would be very easy to have a whole discussion about, you know, (laughs) is something evidence-based or isn't it? And neither of us have clarified what we even mean by evidence-based, right? And that kind of discussion happens, you know, happens in, in, in psychotherapy circles all the time. Yeah. Well, Dr. Shedler, thank you so much for joining us on the Carlat Psychotherapy Report. It's Jonathan Shedler, PhD clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, esteemed psychodynamic psychologist and contributor to the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual. Thank you, Dr. Shedler. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Having a comprehensive and accurate understanding of psychodynamic therapy can be highly beneficial. Individuals who are interested in learning more about psychotherapy and social work can subscribe to the Carlat Psychotherapy Report newsletter. The newsletter is available online with email notifications sent to subscribers when new issues are available. Subscribers may also earn CME credits and have full access to all articles on the website. We encourage everyone to take a moment to read the newsletter. And everything from Carlat Publishing is independently researched and produced. There is no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads, and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust. And don't forget, you can now earn CME credits for listening to our podcasts. Just click the link in the description to access the CME post-test for this episode. And as always, thanks for listening and have a great day.